Hey, welcome to Recharting Your Life with Hope. I'm Hope Cook, creator and host. If you feel stuck, restless, overwhelmed, or dissatisfied with your current life, despite your life looking pretty good on paper, or at least on social media, I can totally relate. Together, we'll figure out how to take the next right step. I'll interview women who are a little farther along on the path and get tips and ideas from them. I definitely don't have it figured out, so I'll share the ups and downs of my own journey with you. Let's get started because life is too short to waste in autopilot. If you want to be the best possible version of you, you're in the right place. All right, welcome everybody. Today we have Suzanne Kingsbury. I'm so excited she's here today. She is a best-selling author, and as if that weren't enough, she's also started um, Gateless Writing. It is a methodology that combines Zen practice, brain science. Um, it helps writers craft their books and get them published. So welcome, Suzanne. Thank you, Hope. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I was looking at your website and you have a lot of cool things that you're doing. Um, we'll get into all the Writers Academy and the writing retreats. But one of the things that intrigued me the most was that you started off your career at a desk job before you did all this cool stuff. Is that right? It is true. I was at a desk. Yes. I thought that was like the only option when I graduated college. Like you go, you get a desk job nine to five. That's right. <laughs> and you didn't, seven. you didn't even take English classes, right? No, I never, I, you know, I tested out of English when I got to college. I just, <laughs> I was so addicted to reading hope that I felt like I would, if I started that road, I was just going to read my way through college and not, you know, not learn anything else. <laughs> funny so you didn't even take an English class but did you always love you loved reading but did you also love writing you know I loved it but it was kind of like a secret you know <laughs> like it, it was where I put my secrets and my you know if I had rage or I had a sadness or you know I would go to my journal and I would write you know poetry and mm -hmm. you know just sort of it was very coming of age stuff but it was never a career it never felt like a career to me <laughs> so you never thought about getting published like you weren't submitting articles or submitting queries no I mean when I was trying to figure out a major in college there was a moment that I thought maybe I should go into English and my father said, you know, it's too competitive. Don't, don't go into writing. <laughs> so I didn't do it. And then, you know, I sort of had to play catch up later. I mean, it was also because I was very addicted to, to literature and, uh -huh. and I wanted to see the world, you know, so I decided to see the world first. And then I got back to the, the writing, but that early kind of, um, voice of the critic, you know, mm -hmm. that dad sort of brought forth, really made me shy away um, from from my love. My yeah, love, you know, I think so many of us listen to our parents, and our parents mean the best for us, but we we internalize all of their dreams and hopes for us, and then we say, "No, I can't do that," or "That's not what a responsible young woman would do." And 
Exactly. Yeah, I think it was Carl Jung who said the greatest influence on the child is the the unlived lives of the of the parents. Oh so. my gosh, that's so true. Yeah, I remember telling my mom I wanted to be an actress or a whatever, and and I said, and I'm going to move to um, New York, and she was like, I hope I don't think you're acting material. <laughs> and, then, yeah, and you know. So yeah, you were working at the desk job and were you kind of secretly thinking, is there more than this? Like, is this all I'm going to do in my life or were you perfectly content? I was restless. I mean, it was a very interesting desk job. I think partly, you know, one of the struggles that I had when leaving that job is that I kept getting promoted. They were sending me internationally to, you know, different parts of Africa. I was getting very good benefits. I was working with very cool people. I mean, it was a, it was a really amazing work atmosphere. So to think that I was going to leave all that behind and for this dream that is, I mean, my father's right in a lot of ways, very competitive and there isn't a clear trajectory really. If somebody wants to be a writer, you know, they don't often have somebody there like a mentor that says, mm -hmm. okay, I mean, that's what I do for writers now, but I didn't have anyone that I could turn to who could sort of say, hey, these are the steps, you know, this is how you become a success in this field. So I think for me, Hope, it was really around, uh, yes, I was restless, but it's because I'm sort of a restless person. <laughs> yeah. It was more like, am I crazy? You know, right. This, right? it felt like a trust fund almost. I, I worked in this huge farmhouse with these people who are like you know peace corps workers and you know regional directors of africa and asia i was learning all about the international art scene like it was very stimulating there that is so cool i can see why you would question why would i ever leave this yes yeah, that was the biggest thing but on the side sort of as a quote-unquote hobby you know i was in writing groups i was doing a lot of dance i was doing drumming and so I had this hunger for mm -hmm. the arts that wasn't being satiated in international education. Even if I was learning about international arts, I wasn't actually you know, doing them in my job. So that, yeah. that kind of, that God took over the arts God. <laughs> mm -hmm. How long do you remember thinking about leaving before you decided to take that year off? I left a couple of times. In fact, I was working, you know, for two years and then I left to do a Fulbright in um, Sri Lanka to study. What? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what did you study there? I studied um, Buddhism. I meditated really in hermitages throughout the year. I wow. I know. It was an amazing year. Yeah. So my, my project was the study of women actually in the Buddhist temples and, and in the rituals, because women are really pushed out in, in often in, in Theravada Buddhism, yeah. Sri Lanka is. So I studied that and, um, and then I came back to the work for two years that I'd been doing. And then I left again for a year and I went to New York City and I got my dance teacher certification there and I worked for the National Dance Institute and then I came back for two oh years. Oh my gosh, you're even cooler than I thought. Okay, that's so neat. So when you were leaving, like to go to Sri Lanka, was was your family supportive or your friends or was everybody like, what are you thinking? I, they, they really 
didn't understand. Yeah. We don't really understand hope. I mean, my, my parents were very much instilling the traditional in us. It's what they knew. You know, my mom was a school social worker. My dad was a school librarian. You know, they weren't doing things. Wow. Kicking the traditional to the curb at all. And I think there, there was a lot of fear kind of in my family growing up around uh, risk and around mm-hmm. um, being special, in fact, being unique, being visible. And that was, you know, that made me visible in some ways that I was doing something very different. And, and it was also, they weren't big travelers. My dad mm-hmm. was flying, you know, it was, <laughs> so I don't know quite how I landed in, in the family. I hope that they, they love me, even though I'm a <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so it was very odd. And I didn't have a lot of friends that were doing things like that. I lost a lot of friends because they just didn't get it. They were yeah. all sort of getting married and having, you know, thinking about kids and yeah. So. <laughs> and you're in Sri Lanka meditating. <laughs> Yes, and that was before meditation became big. Right. Fact, you know, there wasn't, there just wasn't this like be in the now and all of it. it just wasn't, people weren't talking about it. I don't know quite how I, I was, I was living in a little arts town and they did have like a yoga studio, one yoga studio, yeah, one meditation group, you know, so that's sort of, I just, I don't know. I think I came in with a real spiritual bent, you know, sort mm-hmm. of this lifetime and and so I I sought it out quite a bit yeah and then when you went to New York was that a culture shock were you like you know from meditation to New York City (laughs) it was yeah I mean I grew up in Connecticut so I'd been in and out of the city all my life but you're so right Hope it was very much I missed the internal in New York I love New York and I live near New York now obviously because I'm in publishing but it was very hard to work there to to write you know and do do the quote-unquote work that I do now which is like the meditation and finding space to do yoga at a time when there weren't a lot of yoga studios and I felt discombobulated there I mean I loved it and I'll never ever regret it working Mm -hmm. in this world was like amazing you know to be in able to learn movement sentences and get certified and work you know, on huge performances. And it was amazing, but it was definitely, um, okay, I'm probably not going to be in an urban environment. (laughs) Yeah. Did you see your career taking off towards dancing at that point? Yes, I did. I believed that I was going to go into dance and then I ruptured a disc in my back. Yeah. And while I was like recovering, you know, that creative outlet had opened for me. And so I needed to do something. And I really started writing more and more during that time. So yeah, they always call writing a jealous God. It's sort of like, (laughs) (laughs) we are taking over. It's like Seisha, the Egyptian goddess, right? I love that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because it would, I mean, I don't know if you look at it this way, but maybe the injury was a sort of gift, you know, it slowed you down and. Yeah, it was a portal. Absolutely. It was a portal into the true truth of of why I'm here. I got my chart read really early, my astrological chart. 
in my 20s and she said you have the finger of god in your chart and it is pointing towards writing your entire life is going to be about writing what i know and i was like oh i love that (laughs) i thought it was so boring i was like no i want to be a you know choreographer and a dancer and i want to travel the world i don't want to sit in my home office smoking and hoping that i (laughs) did that prediction sort of nag at you over the years it did. I mean, it, it was a mystery, you know, at first. And then as I fell deeper and deeper in love with writing, I mean, writing was for me like the boy next door, sort of that you don't want to look at because he's just the boy next door. But I was so in love with it. I mean, it just, I'm still so in love with it. And I would just keep coming back and back and back until finally I was like, okay, I give myself to you. <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh, I want to get married. <laughs> I know. It's, that's so beautiful. All right. So you started writing and did you set out to write a book or did the, did it just flow out of you? How did you? Yeah, I started by going to a writing group by a woman named Jan Frazier. And she she was very similar to what I do right now, which is she would get us together. We would just write and then we would read aloud and we would only be able to tell each other what we loved. Oh, I like that. Oh, we drank wine, we ate chocolate, we became like best friends. So that was my introduction to writing. And I didn't, I just thought it was like a hobby, like a class I took, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then um, one day I started writing a scene about a boy and the next um, writing group, I wrote a scene about a girl and I realized they were in the same story. And then after that, it started to take off and it was very quick. The first book came in like six months. I mean, the first draft, right? And yeah. then I quit my job <laughs> and that's sort of when it all began. And I, I started to, um, you know, research that book and really give myself to the work and that book the second draft of that book or the third or how many drafts I wrote Uh first year out of my job took about a little over a year. And then I sold that book for more money than I'd made in like my entire life. Yeah. That was the number one book of the year with Scribner, right? It was the number one sale of that fall. So, um, or, I mean, that's what my agent told me. I don't know what they say, right? To you. Yeah, it's a big deal. Good or whatever. But she said it was the biggest sale of the year for a new, um, for a brand new novelist um, yeah. with Scribner. So, yeah, it was very exciting when it sold uh, to realize that like the dream could be a reality and this thing that I'd been in love with for so long could actually be lucrative and could mm-hmm. actually, you know what I mean? It was, yeah. Just, Did you start thinking of yourself as an author at that point, or was it still sort of hard to, hard to call yourself that? It was hard for me to call myself that because it kind of spilled out. I mean, I studied craft, but very much on my own. Like I was reading, I have a kind of, um, I don't know if they'd 
call it like on the spectrum, but I have a patterning that happens with books where I can see, it's almost like uh, mathematical for me. When I see a book, I can tell like kind of geometrically how it's laid out and the patterns and everything in it. And so that's how it came for me was the book kind of laid itself out. Very cool. Like in crop circles almost, yeah. And then I wanted to understand the craft. And, and so I, I wrote one more book and then I went back to school went to get my master's in, uh, in writing to really understand like wh- how to deconstruct it because I didn't really have the vernacular for it. You know, I'd never been trained. And so that was how. So you wrote two really impressive books. Then you went back to school and you were working on a writing degree at this point. Yeah, I chose to go to Bennington because it was really they are great about the intersectionality of creative writing and literature. So they call at the time, they called the program um, creative writing and the literary arts. They focused a lot on books and you read a ton while you were there, really became very skilled at being able to look at books and understand sort of how they're, they're put together and why they work and um, so yeah, that's where I, that's when I went to school and that's when I got writer's block. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I had had this like real, you know, incredible, um, success. And then I went, went back to school and I got writer's block. So I think, you know, there's something to that because when we were talking before about being stuck, you know, it's very much a surprise I think when the stuckness arrives when you've just had these like sort of wonderful experiences in your life and then suddenly everything seems to stop and you're like did I take a wrong turn am I should I not have gone back to school am I you know what I mean you're right figure it all out so that was my um that was my stuck period hope Mm -hmm. Well, it's easy to think that you're on the wrong path or to question, you know, whether you made the right choice. So I can see how that would be very distressing. Do you think it was also because you were surrounded by all these, I don't know, people who you maybe saw as like real writers? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I didn't really have imposter syndrome although I could imagine that some people would, um, but it was more for me that the writing, I had such a deep relationship with the work and it had gifted me so much. And then suddenly there was this culture, which is in academia and in a lot of um, arts education of of criticism. And um, there's a lot of condescending to the writer, not allowing the writer to speak and say what the vision of the work was, um, a, a lot of shoulds and must haves. And suddenly this beautiful, immense feeling that I got when I was working, this joyful, almost, frankly, almost romantic feeling mm-hmm. that I had when I was inside the, the writing um, was, I felt I felt um, stolen from, almost robbed of the joy. And I began to shut down because I didn't feel that I wanted that inside this room, this Mm -hmm. castle, this cathedral that I had built with the work. And 
and that's when I started to research like what is actually going on with the brain when we're criticized and it wasn't even me hope getting criticized because obviously I had had these books already with a very yeah publisher so they didn't really touch me in that way the faculty but I saw it you know I would be inside a room and I would see people leave crying or and yeah. this is just my graduate program I had seen I studied at Iowa as well a summer before that and I saw it all the time there probably maybe even more but it was just it's not their fault it's just how we've been um, acculturated or educated to understand how to teach the arts and so it was very normal what they yeah. what, it wasn't odd at all that they would um, use criticism but because I was so shut down I started to really question it <laughs> and that was contrasted with the other group you'd been a part of that you were only allowed to give good criticism or good feedback yes yeah. yes exactly and why the, my question was why why do I feel open in Jan's group and why did the book come so easily when I was in that experience and why am I not getting anything done in this? Is this me? Is this something yeah. I can't handle criticism, quote unquote, or is this actually something that's happening in the brain? Because a lot of people were shutting down in graduate school and feeling like, I don't know who I am as a writer. A lot of people, there was a lot of attrition. So people withdraw from writing programs a lot mm -hmm. once search on it. And when I did the brain studies, like when I, when I, when I researched the brain studies coming out of Stanford and Johns Hopkins National Institute of Health for my final project, it was very clear that in fact, when they hook the brains of creative people up and look at what's happening uh, to the neurotransmitters when we're in the act of creation, that in fact, criticism and judgment is totally shut down in the brain. That mm -hmm. Do with the act of creation so if you really want to keep generating and generating your best work there has to be an experience where you're able to shut down judgment shut down criticism so it's exact opposite of how we're teaching it yeah that I, I you had gave me an aha moment <clears throat> excuse me i was thinking about um and it was a meditation and it was describing feeling open and you know a meadow and just how much joy and lightness you feel. And then it asks you to do the opposite and feel bound down, constricted, tight, closed down, shut, and how you feel with that. And um, so then throughout the week, you're supposed to ask yourself, like, when do I feel a sense of being open? And when do I feel shut down? And, you know, the simple answer is do more of what makes you feel open <laughs> and do less of what makes you feel shut down. But I love that you studied that so you could actually see the brain light up when you feel that sense of openness. Yes, and they would see that on their screens like it was brain science, you know, it was creative brain science It was fascinating. And what they were finding was that the state of the brain in the act of creation was almost exactly the same as the state of Zen monks. Really? in the state of samadhi or or you know um meditation so very cool we were in fact doing the opposite where where you know in arts education we're putting the student in a state of fight or flight which is the, that was the other side of the research that i did was what happens to the brain when we're judged criticized when anything about us is deconstructed or about our work is deconstructed and what they found was 
in fact, we go into a state of sometimes subtle, sometimes big fight or flight. Mm. When we're in fight or flight, we're only thinking about survivor, so survival. So then the, the part of us that is in touch with the imaginal, the part of the brain, in touch with the imaginal, long-term memory, creative in, innovation, creation, is totally not available to us when we're in fight or flight. So we're in fact going into these programs where we're getting into fight or flight, and then we're trying so hard to get into the imaginal, try, and we can't. And so we kind of like cognitively think up our creative projects rather than falling into the part of the brain where it's already there. And it's that makes so much sense. Yeah. yeah, it's like the reptilian part of our brain that says, <clears throat> you can't, I can't afford to let you be creative right now. Like you may die, you need to run for your life. So we're not going to stop and like write a book. <laughs> exactly. We're not going to stop and like try drumming or something. When you, when you realize this, was it like a eureka moment where you had discovered like your life's purpose or did you think, oh, I, I need to work at this school and change the way we teach this or. At first it was just kind of recognizing it was so personal hope. It was so personal. It was like, wow, I can't, I have finally fallen in love with that boy next door and mm -hmm. realized that, you know, this is going to be my life work and I'm going to live in this cathedral of, of creativity and the literary arts. And suddenly, whoop, you don't, you don't have access. So it was so personal to ask what is going on in my brain? Why is this happening? And I started looking at the literary masters and how they talked about the act of, of creativity and being in that place where they were creating. And it was exactly the same as some of the language around spiritual life. You know, it was like Tennessee Williams, who's just, you know, he was like a drunk guy. Or something. Yeah. I mean, he's not, he, he didn't never profess to be, you know, a Zen monk or something, but his languaging around um, what it felt like to write was very similar to, to say what some of the Zen leaders were saying as well. So it wasn't just the brain science, it was also the, you know, the, the vernacular around mm -hmm. that we talk about the creative process. And um, that became really aha for me, was realizing like, oh, okay. So when the literary masters create, I mean, people like Jane Ann Phillips were talking about mm -hmm. how there were no gates when she wrote. And, and, and that's when I started to wonder, how can I create that for writers? Because if I can create that for writers, I'm going to be able to live in that cathedral with other writers and yeah. we'll be able to lift each other up and create incredible work in a very short amount of time and feel joy while we're doing it. So how could I create something that's not this, that's yeah. not sitting in a circle, not allowing the writer to speak and simply telling them what was the matter with their work, what they needed to fix. Now, Hope, that's not mutually exclusive of of agency with the work, right? right? Skills, tools, you need those. You need resources, connections, a network. You need to know how to do dialogue. You need to know how to start a chapter. All of that are, is, is different than, than criticizing and, and deconstructing and judging and saying like, I don't like the mother in this piece. She doesn't, she's not doing anything here. Or I don't know why we even need her. Why yeah. are you using the word suddenly? here we don't really use the word suddenly you know it's just the very condescending and the writer just starts to shrink it's like instead 
you know, give them tools and tell them where their strength and genius is. And so that's yeah. Yeah. And did you have all the pieces sort of worked out before you had your first group or before you had your first client? Or did you just have some writing friends and you said, let me try this? I was having a lot of like a lot of people were coming to me asking me to read their manuscripts because they'd read my books. And at first I was saying, you know, I don't have time or, you know, I'm in graduate school and I'm writing my own work and stuff. And then I started to realize I could experiment with this, with these writers and charge them, you know, mm -hmm. to look at the manuscripts and to help them move towards publication. But at the same time, see what it's like to work inside this idea of I'm going to look for your strengths. I'm going to find your genius. I'm going to tell you where your work has energy and where it's strong. And then I'm going to give you all the skills to make it better. But we're just going to leave criticism, opinion, all that out. And, and you're going to tell me your vision and we're going to work towards that vision. And then in the first year, everyone who I worked with got their book published. And I that really is amazing. So I see why you say you're a book shaman. It's true. <laughs> yeah, my writers called me that I'm like oh gosh shaman I don't know about that but yeah yeah they did cool yeah, that's that. such a gift to be able to see this inside of somebody and translate it into getting their book published yeah yeah and then I would also gather people you know and create this atmosphere much like my first writing teacher created <laughs> which was come drink tea have a glass of wine eat chocolate relax i'm going to put you into a deep theta state with a meditative exercise i'm going to give you a prompt and then people were every week they would come and we would do this and people started to get columns they started to get their work published or solicited for publication just things started happening from this very secure cozy kind of womb-like place mm -hmm. and also writers really they developed family, you know, it became a, a tribe where they were, you know, rooting each other on through, through the birth of children and marriages and divorces. And yeah, you know, it, it really creates such a bond to, to work in that way. So now we have a huge community, right? All over the world of yeah. these writers who have, yeah, written like this. That's amazing. And you were doing writing retreats before COVID, right? I was, yeah. <laughs> go back again hopefully yeah when people are vaccinated but yeah um we do quite a few writing retreats um every year there's like a destination retreat and there's a shamanic retreat because i am also trained um in shamanic healing oh my gosh of course you are <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool so I do one of those where there's a lot of shamanic healing and body work and, you know, uh, singing bowls, and, you know, that whole thing. And then there's another one that's very classic writing. Like we get together and we really generate a tremendous amount, but they're very, they're beautiful. I mean, we have a chef and we have a body worker and there's little huge oh. light houses and beautiful beds. And, you know, it's just really yeah. about nurturing the writer. Yeah. Well, and I love how you talk about nurturing with the the head massage and the tea and the because so often we don't let ourselves relax enough to get into that creative state whether it's making pottery or cooking or you know whatever we're doing we just we're so um in that cortisol release state where we're we don't realize it but we are fight or flight and that low level cortisol 
I think it, you're saying it clogs us up. It shuts down that creative center. Yeah. I mean, there is, there's like this membrane, right? Between the cortisol and the dopamine. So there is some way that you really want people to get motivated. And the way gateless creates the motivation is actually through a cognitive and somatic experience of oh, I was in a place where I read aloud and everyone told me what was working in the piece and where my brilliance was and what was strong. And now I want to do that again. Mm. So even with the body work, after somebody reads, they get in what we call the nest and they are given body work. Their body is massaged, their head is massaged while they're listening to this feedback. So what that does is it reprograms your body to think of sharing the work as something that feels good. Yeah. And that's what creates motivation because you go home and your body remembers that feeling mm -hmm. of being nurtured, of being relaxed. And you're like, how am I going to, I'm going to write something because then the body will somatically remember. It's just, it's almost, you're not thinking about it. You don't know, why am I writing so much more now? People will say that after I came to retreat, I just, I, my writing block was gone and I just wrote all the time. Yeah. So it's very much about, it really is about the brain and yeah. sort of how we're conditioned and programmed and how to unprogram that in order to really make this a beautiful experience and then people think oh I but I but then I won't be productive you're so productive it's it's one of the beautiful things about gateless is that people produce mm -hmm. a lot I mean after they come to the gateless teacher training their careers explode because wow. unprogrammed the conditioned part of the self that believes any of the camps mm -hmm. believes in the criticism or believes in those things that you're saying you know put you into that constrict constricted place and you're just flowing into your life you have a lot of motivation you have a lot of confidence and and things start to happen very very rapidly oh i am excited i'm ready for i've already been vaccinated so sign me up <laughs> oh my god that's great i could feel myself relaxing as you were talking about it um but i also had another epiphany thinking about when I, so I have two days a week off, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and I've noticed that even if I try to write on Monday night, it's not coming. When I try to write on Tuesday, it's easier, but there's still a lot of tension. And then by Wednesday, that's my day when I can really like, you know, just get it all out on paper. And it makes so much sense that my brain is still in that, like, you know, I got to go see the next patient and the next patient and the next patient. And got to get the kids lunch ready and do all this. And then by Wednesday, I'm like, okay, oh. <laughs> I need a nest though. <laughs> yeah. You need a nest and hope when you're working with patients, is there a certain amount of like way in which if you were too open, you would just like, I mean, crumble sort of with, with every patient. So you have to be a little bit um, discerning in terms yeah. of, yeah, with your energy, your empathy, or, you know, all of that, you have to sort of keep that in, in check. I mean, it's there, I could tell. Just yeah, you do have to guard, you know, I, I do feel like I have to put up sort of a shield yeah. for my energy. Yeah, and I think in a way, it's very palpable to you, right, because you are somebody who's aware energetically, or you're self-aware, you're looking mm -hmm. at this 
just like you said that podcast that you were listening to about you know the clenching and the opening Mm -hmm. but I think we're all always in a state of guarding you know because we're living in systems that don't really support us expressing the whole self or connecting in that way they just it doesn't give us we don't have that kind of time really Mm -hmm. you're right just don't have that that's not how the system works so it makes sense that that you're yeah you're on sort of unprogramming or unconditioning from that you know that necessary guard that Mm -hmm. that I call the guard at the door it's like okay the guard at the door needs to oh wait it's Tuesday okay let me actually eat a sandwich and take a nap or whatever so she can do her creative work yeah and I have you found certain things that you suggest to your um what do you call clients when they go back home, do you say, you know, take time out, do yoga, do meditation? Yeah. And a lot of um, the writers, they don't have time. I mean, yeah. they have kids, they have to get the groceries. They, I mean, you know, it's just, they have a job, they have a husband, you know, and not everyone's dateless, right? right. Nobody's really working in that paradigm yet. I hope it, you know, I hope that we turn a corner as a society, but So one thing that's very quick for them that they can do is like, you're in the dentist chair, close your eyes and move back to retreat in your mind or move back to your gateless circle or move back like in the academy, we have these seminars that they're listening to all the time that sort of ease them into craft and skill and resource building for getting agency on the page. And even just listening to a little, even if you have five minutes, you know, or meeting your work for, you know, right before bed, two minutes having a notebook. By. So the real, one of the real things right now is time. Everything's mm-hmm. going so quickly. And I think a lot of what's being out there, it's too much time that we're being asked. It doesn't take that much time for the brain to, oh, oh this is where we are. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's just a quick remembering of like that space. You were in the nest at retreat or you were reading aloud and everybody was telling you what they loved you were eating that food that was so delicious. You took a walk with that new friend. It's all you really need. And just for a split second, your body and your brain can remember. Okay. Really, I try not to stress people out that, you know, I wrote one of my books in an hour a week. I didn't have any time. Yeah. I had all this stuff going on and I had that hour and I realized, oh my God, I got my book written in an hour a week. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these, it's, it's not that like, you're going to be able to write a whole book in a weekend because that would stress the book out, but really allowing us to understand that once you get into that theta brain state, that, that state of creativity and innovation and generation, it's there, time can kind of warp and it's elastic. And suddenly you realize like, oh, I have gotten so much done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so relaxing, you know, it's like oxygen. Yeah. I love that. Oh, so you just give yourself permission to put the guard down and then you have a moment of remembering. And then I think you're, you train your brain. Once you recognize the theta state, you're able to sort of get back into it more quickly. Yeah. And the thing is that if you can't get into that state, say there are weeks that go by where you're just stressed and you just feel like the guard's always there. You might even take a vacation and the guard never goes down. And then what happens is that the judgment comes, right? The criticism of the self, what's the matter with me? Why can't I relax? Why can't yeah. I it? Why am I not writing? Because that's just what is right now. 
And it's just a portal probably that they're going through. It's a little bottleneck. It, it might be that things are shifting energetically or inside or the work is gestating and it feels restless while it's gestating. Mm -hmm. It's find its form, a character is rising. We don't know, but at every turn, what Gateless looks for is that time when the writer puts the judgment on top of what's happening. And just mm -hmm. recognizing, oh, I just judge myself. I just judge my process. I just, it's like, instead of that, there are action, action points that, mm -hmm. that people can really follow. Like, you know, write every day if that makes you feel good or sketch a character or whatever. But, you know, sometimes it isn't going to come easily and that there's no judgment to that. It just is. It's part of it. It's part of the evolutionary process of, of being a creator. Yeah, we're so critical of ourselves, you know? um we're our own worst enemy a lot of times when it comes to writing yeah yeah and everything I mean sometimes I do um I do shamanic sessions with people channeling and that sort of thing and you know the biggest thing that that spirit comes in to say is that there is an interruption when the self-criticism comes there's there's a judgment and and when we're in a dark night when we're in a stuck mm -hmm. place to also put on top of it the judgment instead of realizing everybody, this is the nature of the universe. It, con it contracts and it expands. It contracts and expands. It's our breath. It's, you know, it's seasons. It's like everywhere. To understand this is just a process. You're not doing anything wrong. Here are some tools, you know, to mm -hmm. keep going and to navigate it. But I think, you know, really allowing the self that room to be to 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 be where wherever you are and not think that you're doing anything wrong or you need to be fixed or yeah and it, it helps me to observe the judgment to kind of think of it outside of myself or to name it you know there's that darn you know gracie or whoever whatever you want to call her she's doing that again yeah, exactly. And sometimes she has something really interesting to say, because the guard at the door, like when you think about your own work, probably you need that, you know, you can't just be open and, you know, hug every patient mm -hmm. and hold them and talk to them for hours because other patients need you and, you know, you're going about your rhythm of your day. And so that guard kind of is there to really help. And what can happen is the criticism comes and that's just a a sign for us to turn around and look at the guard because we may not be looking at what it's trying to say and so it starts to rev up a little bit yeah say to it hey what what do you have to tell me i hear you getting a little a little restless over there a little a little angry so let's sit down and really have a talk so when writers come and talk about their guard at the door what we try to do is really talk on the page have a dialogue with it Yes. What are you trying to say? What do you need? Because sometimes it's asking for tools and skills and resources. I don't know how to do this. I need you to take a class. I need you to, I don't, uh -huh. I want you to go forward with this. And I feel like I'm not, I don't have enough, you know, to, to do that. So often it has good information. It's just the way it's coming through is, so people are like, I bound my critic up and I just, <laughs> it's like oh wait there, there might be some info there you need <laughs> that's so true I've done that with um fear and with judgment and with physical pain you know I write on the page like what are you here to teach me or you know what do I need to hear from you and at first the first time I ever did it I thought I was going crazy because you really do feel like another person is answering that 
and writing out the response. And, um, but it's, it's become kind of a habit over the years. And I've taught my daughter <laughs> to ask herself, like when her tummy hurts, what are you trying to tell me? And I'm always like the school nurse is going to be calling me about this. <laughs> <laughs> it's really incredible to look back at the origin of writing and just see that that's actually how it started. Like really? if you way back at, you know, say Shah, the Egyptian goddess of the word, or, you know, even in ancient Greece, or you look at the Kabbalah or Sanskrit, it really was a modicum for higher information. Ah. It, so, you know, that's what the Greek gods said. They said, when we left the earth, we left you the alphabet, which is like a, ah. a way to communicate with us. So this idea that the word can be a diviner is very interesting, you yeah. know, for, for her to talk to her belly and ask, hey, hi, I yeah. hear you trying to communicate with me. What would you like to say? And to have the word as a way to do that. So it doesn't get all mixed up with her thoughts of like, this isn't real. And I don't know, is that my tummy or is that somebody else? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's physically manifested on the page where she can look at it. Yeah. And look at that sort of dialogue unfold. And this idea that that's somehow sorcery or that's, it's, it was from the beginning. Right. You know? it's, it's how it came in. I mean, even Moses, you know, that was the Sermon on the Mount. They, they gave the, whatever that is, that God that gave the, it was written, you know, mm -hmm. written on a stone tablet. It wasn't said. So writing is very, I think, very powerful as a diviner, as a way to understand what the higher self is trying to bring to us. Yes, that was so beautifully said. We have the answers within us and writing is a way to discern what those answers are. Exactly, yeah, writing yeah. is such a gift and we ignore it so much. I mean, even in each word, you can see the divination of, of, mm -hmm. of how to do that word, like love or, you know, there's, yeah. Very interesting. I could go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> well, and looking at the big picture with your life and your career, I can see how all these pieces fit so beautifully together. But I know it wasn't always like that. So if you had to give somebody advice who is like, what do I do? I like this, but I have to earn money. And like, how do I do it? Do you have any advice? I think earning money, Hope, is survival is the first thing. Right, so a lot of the advice we're getting and the suggestions sort of leap and the net will appear mm -hmm. and you know, just have fear as your co-pilot and all that. We do need to pragmatically think about what is my life gonna look like in terms of my finances and in terms of taking care of myself so that I don't have to depend on someone else so that I can pay my medical bills, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think finding um, work that does that and then making sure that there's enough energy left over somewhere mm -hmm. in your day to be curious, yeah, be in wonder about those things and not just shut it down. And it's so hard, Hope, to not just turn on the TV. I mean, me too, I love TV, but there may be just a little corner of the evening where it's like five minutes where yeah. you're writing something or playing your ukulele or you know what I mean yeah. singing, taking a little online singing course or a photography course and never beating the self up if like 
I signed up for that online course. I never did it. It's okay. Do another one. Or go back and ask if you can access the course. You know what I mean? So really being gentle with the self in this world that has gotten us on a hamster wheel. The hamster wheel is real. It is real. And we do need to feed ourselves and then understand that there are people out there who also think creatively and pragmatically and can kind of help to chart the course for you and look for those people as mentors. Mm -hmm. And a a supportive group. If writing's your thing, join a group like Suzanne's or if it's, you know, dancing, join a dance class, but you'll find your tribe there. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and know that, that the arts are a slow build because they are so foundationally solid. They will keep you in good company for the rest of your life. So if you don't meet people at that dance or you have a bad dance teacher, get out and find another one. Get out of that if it doesn't work. Just keep looking for your people. Keep looking for that feeling that you talked about that's like, I feel open, Mm -hmm. I feel excited, I'm motivated, I can you know, and, and it, you may have to quit a lot of things in yes. order to finally find that flow because it's a little rare right now. Yes. Give yourself permission. Big, big, big. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can learn about the things that you're offering. And we have a website, which is um, www.gateless.com writing.com or you can look for me with my name Suzanne Kingsbury and yeah I mean we have 80 teachers around the world now people are giving oh, wow moms everywhere yeah a lot of people are trained in the methodology beautiful people and um, yeah they can join the academy they can come on retreat they can become certified as a teacher whatever they want so gatelesswriting.com awesome. well thank you so much for joining us Thank you so much for having me. It's just amazing what you're doing. And I, I love it. Oh, thank you. Oh my gosh. That was so much fun. Thank you, Suzanne. Okay. Here are her take home points. Number one, pay attention when you feel a restlessness or a hunger for something other than what you're doing. Suzanne had a hunger for the arts, especially writing, which she just couldn't ignore. Number two, there's often fear associated with being visible and doing things differently than the status quo. You might even lose friends who just don't get it. Number three, physical injuries or illnesses can be portals leading to a new you. Number four, pay attention to what you keep coming back to over and over. And Suzanne describes this as the boy next door, which I love. For Suzanne, her boy next door was writing. Number five, stuckness can come as a big shock in our lives. It can make you question if you're on the right path, but don't give up. This is part of your journey. Number six, an atmosphere of criticisms and shoulds and must-haves will steal your joy and can literally shut down parts of your brain. Suzanne realized this when she enrolled in a writing degree program, and she described how the body went into fight or flight, causing areas of her brain associated with creativity to clamp down and become unavailable. Number seven, even difficult circumstances, like when Suzanne felt stuck and creatively shut down, can lead to new interest and opportunities like the connection between brain science and creativity that she started studying. Number eight, live in a cathedral of creativity. 
This requires a safe feeling where your strengths and your genius are recognized and praised instead of having your work criticized. Number nine, pay attention when people keep asking for your help with something or your advice. This might be your zone of genius. For Suzanne, this was her talent of mapping out and seeing patterns in people's uh, books. She also realized she was like a writing shaman for those who felt blocked or stuck. Number 10, cortisol and stress can shut down our motivation and creativity, reprogram your body, and activate those theta waves with calming practices like meditation or massage. This teaches your brain to associate creativity with safe, being safe and, um, yeah, being safe. Number 11, Suzanne describes our creative blocks as being like the guard at the door. The guard is there for a reason, so ask her what she needs and then listen to her. It might even help to write out a dialogue on the page. Like, what do you need? And then you write what you need. And um, it's like the two parts of your brain are dialoguing with each other. Number 12, survival has to come first. Find a job, then make sure there's enough energy left over to allow curiosity and wonder to have some space in your life. And lastly, keep looking for that open and excited and motivated feeling and you will find your tribe. You might have to quit and try a lot of different things, but give yourself permission. Thanks again, Suzanne. And y'all come on over to the website if you want to see a photo of Suzanne and check out her links. Come to hopethepa.com. y'all so much for taking time out of your day to listen to my podcast recharting your life with hope i would love it if you could go over to apple leave a review rate my podcast and if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these interviews or hearing my words please share the podcast with them Lastly, come on over to the website. I want to share my new ebook with you. It's called Hacking the Life Machine. Um, I have totally written it and got somebody to help me illustrate it. It's super cool and I'm very proud of it and I'd love to share it with you. All you have to do is send me your email through the website and I will share it with you. We're almost done with season one of my show and I can't believe leave. It's been so much fun. Can't wait for season two. Don't worry. I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'll still be here this summer, still be posting podcasts, but we'll save some juicy interviews for after school starts back in August.